0: We will have a reading from God's Word. Romans 5, 1-2 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by the faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hey, y'all. Good to see you. Happy uh, Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if you're rooting for the old guy or the young guy today. Uh, either way, somebody's somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. That'll be that'll be fun, right? Always fun to win, uh, and always fun to gloat. So there we go. Uh, I hope you're on the the winning side if you care. If you don't, I hope you have a great day anyway, right? Um, all right. I want to remind you if you haven't downloaded the church center app yet, please do so. This is an important way to stay connected to us. Uh, during this time of social distancing, right? So if you simply download it, you can, um, you can get the link to our bulletin, you can get the announcements, you can do all of those fun things. Uh, you can also uh, head over to our website if you are online uh, and uh, are having issues, any issues with Vimeo or with Facebook uh, and live streaming. We stream it live on our website. And uh, if you log in, of course, you can chat with other people on our website. You can also see our bulletin and all the things Right there with it. All right. There's a critical word in our passage today that I want to introduce to you right up front. Uh, kahaumai. All right. I want you to say it with me. You ready? Kahaumai. Let's do it again. Kahaumai. Okay. You're like, that's awesome, Steve. It is. I just taught you uh, a word from Koine Greek. This is ancient Greek. And, uh, the word means to boast. Okay, It means to boast, but it has a range of meanings. Like like most words, it doesn't just simply mean one thing. It has a, a range of meanings. It means to boast, it means to rejoice, it means to glory. Right? Kahaumai. Kahaumai. Right? It's in verse 2 uh, where it says that we, we uh, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God or we boast in the hope of the glory of God or we glory in the hope of the glory of God. Kahaumai. The word is actually used three times in the first half of our chapter in these two paragraphs if you uh, are into inductive bible study which i hope you are that simply means uh, observational bible study it means you read the bible and 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 you try to observe things out of it when you see uh, the apostle use a word three times in close succession over the course of a of a context like this right he he hasn't it, it's like all of a sudden the word pops up and then it's used three times in this section that tells you that he's saying something about it, right? It's kind of important. It's the kind of word you want to highlight and pay attention to, and see how he develops the thought over the course of the next couple of paragraphs, right? Um, so let me just start with a, a, a question: What is your kahamai? What is your kahamai? And you're like, Steve, that makes think, okay. Think about the meaning, y'all. Think about the meaning. What's your glory? What's your boast? What's your joy? What's your kahalmai? Right? What is it that that is your boast? In other words, it 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 makes you feel powerful, makes you feel right, makes you feel I'm superior, makes you feel secure. Right? What is your joy? What is it that has the potential when you receive it to unleash joy in your heart? What is it that, that is your glory? That, that kind of crowns your head with honor? That when you get it, you just, you feel powerful. You feel secure. You feel joyful. What is your kahalmai? I guarantee you have not just one, but many. Um, but more than likely, while you have many, you probably have at least one that's at the top of the mountain. One primary, one that uh, is is just kind of your go-to. Now, now maybe it it manifests in different situations, right? Like uh, I, I got to admit, one of my 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 how am I? I like to win. I don't know about you guys. I like to win. I I like when I play poker, man. I want to win. It's more important to me to win than to have money with poker, right? And you're like, well, that's gambling. Isn't it all about the money? No, it's not. It's, it's about the dominion of your will over others. It's about it's about recognizing their weakness and trapping them in it. It is. It, you know what I'm saying? Like like I like to. Win. I I like, so I, anything that you can count, I count. Like, like I'm that guy, right? When when I'm in line, I just pay attention to where everyone else is in that line at the same time to find out if I win. That's just me, right? That's my come how. So it, it manifests in a lot of different situations. You see what I'm saying? Like, like it can be in a lot of different contexts. It can be in different situations, different relationships, different environments. It looks different at work than it does at home, than it does in, in when I'm relaxing. And, 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 but but it, it's always there. That's just, that's just one of the things that, that I've come to learn about myself. What's your kahama? Right? When do you feel secure? What has the, the ability to release joy in your heart to make you feel secure, significant, rested, joyful? Um, well, some of you, uh, have your am I on the right. Uh, there are and uh, that are uh, Tom Brady uh, fanboys and fan girls. Um, uh, they love the guy and uh, uh, they have a lot riding on today, right? For some of you, politics. I mean, honestly, coming out of the last election season, some of you are still boasting. And some of you are still wrecked. Right? Why? Because of your kahaumai. You had your kahaumai wrapped up in, in politics. You, some of you, it's job success. Whether or not you get your promotion, whether or not you get your, your corner office, whether or not you get the recognition, whether or not you get the, the pay raise, right? It can manifest itself in so many different ways. For some of you, it's your kids. Right, you, your heart rises or falls with how they behave in public or how they behave in front of your parents or, or whether or not they, they become financially successful or, or whether or not they end up making the, the life choices that you desperately want them to make. You know what I'm saying? Your kahaumai is wrapped up in the lives and in the choices of your kids. It, 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 it can be in so many different things, right? You're going to have many, but my guess is there's one in your life that is greater than all the others. And it may look different in different contexts, but it's going to surface. It's that thing that you think is going to set you free, but here's what I want you to hear. It's the very thing that becomes your prison. Your kahoma, your, your boast, your glory, you, you keep turning to it because you think it's going to actually set you free. You think it's actually going to give you the fullness of life. And yet, all it does is further and further enslave you to the pursuit of whatever it is without ever actually receiving the benefit that it promises. Today, we're going to talk about the key that's going to set you free from that prison. Today, we're going to talk about the true and the uh the or the boast, or the glory, or the joy that, that you were actually created to pursue and to rest in, right? Alright, so let's take a look at our passage. Uh, We are looking at the first two verses of Romans 5, and uh, our first word is therefore, so we need to ask our critical question. What is our critical question? Good job. Yes, every time you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? This is just, again, inductive Bible study, observational Bible study. It's important to become critical or careful readers. Right? So in this case, uh, the therefore is, is telling us there's a transition in Paul's thinking. Right? He's moving from, from a point he's developed to a new application of that point. Right? And it points us back to the full argument that Paul has been developing from chapter 1, verse 18. Right? So, so chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 have been developing some, some key Ideas, especially chapter 319 through 425, that, that section that, that focuses on the work of Christ to set us free. He extends us the benefit of, of His death, burial, and resurrection by grace, and we receive it by faith, right? So, so, therefore, considering everything He's just developed in chapters 1 through 4, we are justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified, By faith. Looking back at everything that sets the foundation, I can give you this concluding statement. Therefore, considering everything we've already talked about, we've been justified by faith. Justified by faith is a little phrase, uh, that is incredibly loaded, right? This is, this is, um, one of those phrases in Paul's letters that are just, uh, ridiculously pregnant with meaning. When he says justified by faith, he means so much, right? He's just spent four chapters developing the key ideas that are summarized in those three words, right? And at the heart of it is this idea of double imputation. It's an idea that we developed in chapter three and and talked about the application of it in, in chapter four, but at the heart of it is this idea of double imputation. Let me remind you what that means. Imputation is sometimes translated credited, right? That's how Paul translates it, or, or our translators translate it in, in Romans, right? When it talks about his righteousness being credited to Abraham, being credited to us, that's the word imputation, right? It, it means to apply something to someone's account, right? It, it means, it can be a gift, but, but it really has more to do with this idea of transference of status, Right? And at the heart of this phrase, justified by faith, is this doctrine of double imputation, right? That my sin was imputed to Christ. That, that my sin was, was credited to Christ on the cross, and his resurrection was imputed to me in the resurrection. Right? He took my judgment on the cross. He didn't just die. He died a sacrificial death. He died a substitutionary death. He died in my place for my sin, right? Because my sin was imputed to him. And when he rose, he didn't just rise for himself, he rose for me. He didn't just rise in his own blessing of resurrection. He rose in my blessing of resurrection because my sin was imputed to him. He then imputes to me his righteousness, his active obedience. In all the ways I've failed, that's all been for him, and all the ways he obeyed and succeeded, that has been imputed to me. So he died under the penalty of my sin, and I live under the blessing of his resurrection. That doesn't sound like a very fair trade, does it? Right? You get all the bad stuff; I get all the good stuff. You take everything that's wrong with me, and I get everything that is right. With you. That doesn't sound like a very fair trade, and that's because it's not. Right? There's nothing fair about it. Right? That's why this whole thing can only come to us in one way through grace, through God's unmerited, unearned, loving favor. It has to come to us as a gift. It's not a fair trade, it is not a transaction. It has to be. Because there's nothing fair about it. There's nothing I can offer that could in any way provoke God to give me the blessing. Right? All I have to offer is my brokenness. So by grace, He takes my brokenness and instead gives me His wholeness. It is grace offered to me as a gift. And as a result of God offering us this grace... There's only one way to receive it, right? When someone offers you a gift, there's only one way to receive that gift. You have to actually humbly, by faith, receive, right? You can't earn a gift, or it's no longer a gift. You can't show up and say, uh, you know, I just, I, I feel so bad receiving this as a gift. I feel a little too, too much pride. This, I feel like I have something to offer, and you're not acknowledging what I have to offer. And if I receive it as a gift, that makes me feel humiliated because humility always feels like humiliation to the proud. And so instead, I show up and say, I have to earn this thing. I have to offer you something in return for it, right? The problem is that puts God in the position of debtor and me in the position of earner, right? That's me showing up and saying, well, here's my good works or here's my religious behavior or here's my improvements, or here's how I'm serving others, or here's how I I do these good things, and in exchange for that, you now owe me righteousness. You now owe me blessing. Uh, The problem is the only thing we can ever offer God is our sin. Our, Our best works are like filthy rags, right? Isaiah 64. We have nothing to offer, and as a result, anytime we come up to earn, the only thing we get in response is death. Because death is the consequence of sin. It is extended to us in grace, and because it's extended to us in grace, the only way to receive it is by faith. We must humbly receive the gift. We must trust the God who makes the promise, and trust the promise will deliver on God's word. It is extended to us in grace. It must be received by faith. So our justification... Is by grace and it comes to us through faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul now goes on to explain two related results that come from this truth. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God and we stand in grace, right? Take a look at the end of verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Incredible news, considering where we started. Remember the very first thing—the um, very first thing Paul said when he got past his introduction, right in, in, in Romans one eighteen. Right. So Romans one one through seventeen is is the introduction, the welcome, the prayer of gratitude, and the statement of, of purpose. And the first, the very first thing he says when he actually gets to the body of the letter is this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Man, that's a great way to start. Right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven Again, specifically our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, right? That, that we seek to ungod god God. We seek to take his place. We seek to dethrone him and sit in his throne, in his place. And we act in unrighteousness, which, which means un, we act in a, in a way that lacks justice toward other humans created in the image of God. We take advantages we don't give others. We expect benefits that we assume others don't deserve. We receive advantages where others are disadvantaged without any thought to the fact that we are in fact defrauding others created in the image of God of equality before God and before man. We seek to dethrone God and we seek to advantage ourselves at the expense of others. We are guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And God is not passive in response to this. God is not indifferent. This provokes God to wrath. And we've talked about this before. It's not because he's, he's short-tempered or irrational. It's because he's loving. And love is provoked to anger when people abuse love, manipulate love, abuse love for self-gain. The proper response to somebody who is seeking to uh, take the advantages of love and corner them for selfish gain is anger. So Paul then spends the next two chapters making it clear (laughs) that he's not just talking about them, One of the beautiful things about chapter one is he keeps saying they, 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 which is a rhetorical device so that we as readers are like, you're right, they're bad. You're right, they're sinners. You're right, they're they're horrible. And then in chapter two, he turns the table and he's like, all right, because I've been talking about you the whole time. You know, you who condemn others, you do the same thing. You who feel so superior to their sin, you sin in the same exact way, right? So he spends the next two chapters driving at home that he's talking about us. Not them, but us. Right? Not the others. The people we think are the bad guys. The people we, we feel justified looking down on and angry at and, and, and condemn. Right? No, he's he's talking about us. There is no other. There are two groups, not three. It's not the good guys, the bad guys, and God. It's God and the bad guys. That's it. God and the ungodly and the unrighteous. And you're not God, so you know which group you're in, right? Let's just make that clear right up at the front. And and, and so God is saying, look, man, or Paul is saying, you're in a position of wrath. Because of your your perpetual desire to unseat God and take his place and to uh, uh, use others for your gain, right? Whether you're rebellious or religious in the way you do it. Because some people do it through morality and some people do it through immorality. Some people do it through through trying to build lives that, that look socially acceptable and some do it by trying to tear down the society that seeks to uh, guide them and, and control them, right? We're all in the same boat. So then in, in Romans 3.23, he moves forward and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? All have sinned. He's talking about The, the, this past tense, right? We all have sinned. It's speaking of our first parents, sin and rebellion against God, and, and the fact that we've inherited it from them. That we are sinners, not just by choice, but by birth. We are born with a broken nature of rebellion against God. All have sinned from our first parents on because we have inherited this sordid uh, inheritance from God. The ripple effects of our first parents' sins continue through our hearts today. We all have sinned, and as a result, we fall short of the glory of God. That's present tense, right? We, we fall short of being what we were created to be, which was the image of God, right? To manifest the glory of God. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I want to make it clear that though what he's describing is that outside of Christ, men, we are living lives of continual blasphemy. Lives of continual cosmic treason. Like Steve, you said this a thousand times. Why do you keep driving at home? Because we forget. We think bad things are things we do occasionally. Bad choices we sometimes make. Rebellious choices we sometimes make. Those bad things that we sometimes feel tempted to do. But the reality is, our hearts are restless in their desire to unseat God. And put ourselves in His seat. Our hearts are continually churning and looking for ways to find advantages over others for selfish gain. We are continually seeking to excuse ourselves from doing the very things we condemn in others. Our hearts are restless in their evil and continual in their rebellion. Sin is not an occasional bad thing I do. It is a continual status of my heart in which I am continually blaspheming God by misrepresenting I'm created in the image of God and yet I misrepresent the very image that has been placed on me in creation. I'm continually blaspheming God and I am continually seeking to be unjust to those also created in His image as I feel superior to them and condemn them and, and, and seek to find advantage from them. Listen, y'all. This is why this verse is so incredibly good. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer in a position of enmity. We are no longer under wrath. We stand in a position of peace. Our greatest problem has been solved because our greatest debt has been paid. Let's be clear. I'm still the same guy I've always been. I still have the same heart. It is restlessly evil. I I still take joy in other people's suffering if I feel like their suffering was deserved. I still take joy in my unjust gain if I have twisted the logic and think somehow I deserve what I got even, even though it came at other people's Expense. I I still continually try to manipulate life so that I don't have to humbly depend on God. I can solve my own problems. I can mark the boundaries of my own glory. I can provide for my own security. I can define my own joy apart from any kind of humble, dependent relationship on God. I am continually seeking to un-God God, right? I'm the same guy I've always been. I still sin and I still fall short of the glory of God. But I am no longer under wrath. I am under grace. I have peace. The word, the verb there, I have, is present tense. It speaks of a continual present reality. We have peace. You don't have it when you behave. You don't have it when you feel like you have it. You don't have it when you think you deserve it. You have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you feel like it or not, if you have believed in Christ, you are Christ's. And He has given you peace with your God. This is my ongoing, unshakable reality because I stand in a position of grace. Again, Look at our verses. We'll look at verse 2 now. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The position of peace with God can't change. You know why? Because I stand in grace. I don't stand on the merit of my performance. I don't stand on the goodness of my religious behavior. I I don't stand on the record of my good choices. I don't stand on the quality of my theology or or the, the level of my intellect. I stand in grace. That's my standing with God. I am justified by faith. But faith is simply the hand that receives the gift of grace. And God's grace isn't a passing gesture toward me. It is his continual posture over me. Do you get that? God's grace isn't isn't something that that is is temporarily extended to us because you know we have found a moment of humility or or we you know we overcame a sin or, or or we did the right thing. It's not a gesture. It is His continual posture. It is the posture that he has taken in relationship to us and over us. It is a position of unmerited, unearned, un. Unending, unshakable love and acceptance and delight. This is radically counterintuitive because every human relationship makes it clear that we are accepted when we are acceptable. Every human relationship communicates to us that we are loved when we are lovable. Every human relationship communicates to us that we receive blessing when we have made ourselves worthy of blessing in the eyes of the person we want to be blessed by. And if we can never make ourselves worthy, the best we can hope for are scraps from the table. Some of you know that. If you have relationships with people you love, but you just, for whatever reason, are, we'll call it outside their graces, right? And that's that a phrase we use? You stand outside of their favor. Maybe it's something you've done or you've said, some way that you failed them, disappointed them, or hurt them, but you stand outside of the realm of their blessing, and the most that you can hope for are scraps from the table, an occasional gesture of grace. We call that charity, right? We, We hope for just a momentary charity from them, a sign. What's amazing is that God... Adopts the posture of grace. He adopts the posture of charity, right? He doesn't, he didn't, he didn't open the coffers of heaven for a limited and momentary blessing. He gave us the keys to the storehouse of unlimited, unending blessing. That's true charity. The English word charity actually is an old English word. That means love. We've come to abuse that word into momentary, you know, like I'll give you a little bit of my extra because you're impoverished, right? But the word charity in the Old English literally means love. It was a translation of the Greek word agape, uh, the word love that's describing the love of God. God is a God of charity, continual charity. It is his posture, not his gesture. We stand in grace. Y'all, this is insane. Insanely good. I have peace with God, no longer enmity. Not because I've won my peace, but because Christ is my peace. I stand, I stand in the presence of God and grace. Like, I stand. I have a standing with God. Like, like I have a continual standing meeting with God. I, I don't have to come groveling. I don't have to come timidly. I don't have to come after I've cleaned myself up or fixed myself or somehow abused myself enough for what I've done wrong. I come into the very presence of God and have a standing with God. The door is always open. The invitation is always present. I can come into the very presence of the Creator God. Even as my heart is restlessly rebelling and fighting and churning and find a continual welcome. I don't come timidly. I don't come afraid. Y'all, it doesn't take courage to come into the presence of God. You know what it takes? Faith. Faith that He is who He says He is and that He has done what He says He has done. Faith that Christ has in fact become your peace and that He will fulfill His blessing. Not just to cleanse you from all of the brokenness and all of the rebellion and all the sin and all of the failure and all of the shame, but to transform you into His very image. That He will not only remove everything that was wrong, but He will give you everything that is right and make you into who you desperately long to be and who you were created to be. God has won our peace and has by grace given us his permanent perpetual blessing. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace and we stand in grace. Now what I want you to see is that these two verses are actually exploring the practical implications of double imputation. That that theological idea that's at the heart of that phrase. Right? Because my sin was imputed to Christ in his death, I have peace. Right? He was judged, I am forgiven. Because my sin was imputed to Christ, I have peace with God. The removal of the guilt of my blasphemy and my cosmic treason. Right? But the promise, promise isn't just that, that my sin was imputed to Christ, but that his righteousness has been imputed to me. That, that I gave him my record and, and I got his, right? In his death, my sin was removed from me. In his resurrection, his righteousness. Was given to me. As a result, I stand in grace. I I stand in the presence of God covered with the very active obedience of Jesus. When I come into the presence of God, I, I don't come in Steve's failures, I come in Christ's obedience. I stand accepted, delighted in, rejoiced over, covered in Christ. These two profound truths lead Paul to one of the most remarkable propositions in the letter at the end of verse four, All right, Let's take a look, or excuse me, at the end of verse two. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This theme of the glory of God runs really through the whole letter of Romans, but specifically through the first eight chapters. Um, And and it's developed and it kind of comes to a a peak in Romans 8, where it says that we we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Right, that, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. We'll we'll talk about that when we get into chapter eight, right? But what I want to do is talk about what Paul is asserting here. Let me remind you, when it talks about the glory of God, we're not talking about some ethereal glowing brightness. Right? When people talk about glory, a lot of times, especially when they're talking about the glory of God, they just get this vague sense of of something that glows, right? That's so holy, so pure that it's just really bright right? Kind of like a halogen bulb, right? That, that someday I'm going to be a halogen bulb in heaven, shining with the very goodness and glory of God, right? I'll be so bright, you won't be able to look at me, but you're going to be so bright, I can't look at you. That's really going to be bad. That's not what it's talking about. The word glory does not mean bright, shining light, okay? It doesn't mean this big circle, over the top of my head, like we see in so much of, of the, the, the medieval religious art, you know, where they put this this circle and and, and are like, oh, that's supposed to represent glory, this bright shining. Um, y'all, we know what the word glory means. The essence of glory is honor. Right? The essence of glory is honor. When somebody wins glory, what do they win? Honor. Right? When you win the race and you're covered with glory, what, you get the crown of glory, right? It's honor. Right? It, it, is, it is succeeding in what you're supposed to succeed in. It's doing what you're supposed to do and being what you're supposed to be and doing it and being it at such a level that you're crowned with honor. Glory. We're not talking about moral purity, we're not even talking about holiness. Right? When we're talking when Paul is talking about glory, he's talking about honor. A very, very specific kind of honor. The honor that comes from exercising the authority and the power of God's dominion. We were created in the image of God. Right? That doesn't mean we look like God. Right? That that's not what that means. It means that we were created to function as God functions, right? We were unique in all of creation as humans, and that we were created to be the vice stewards over creation. We were to exercise God's dominion over everything else God created for His honor and for our good. It was the functional outworking of the great Command. That we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in responding to that love, we are to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. And so God gave us this creation and then said, do what I've done. Protect what I've given you and make more. I'm giving you this gift of culture, right? A garden. What is garden? A garden is a cultivated place of wildness. Where you take the the raw materials of what are, what is, and and you create something new. That's what God did. God gave them kind of the, the yeast, the starter of culture. He said, here's a gift. Protect it. Steward it. And go do more of it. Go be artists. Go be scientists. Go be entrepreneurs. Right? But do it in humble dependence on me. Do it for my honor and for others' good. Image me. Exercise the dominion and the power of my kingdom of creation. Exercise my reign. Which is why, of course, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they plunged all of creation into their rebellion because they had been given the authority as stewards over creation. And when they sinned, they plunged everything into the consequences of that sin, including us. We were created, y'all, to be crowned with that honor. We were created to be crowned with that glory, to steward ourselves and everything around us for the honor of God and for the good of others. A love that, that... Responds to God's love and then flows in love to others through the exercise of our gifts and our talents, our potentials and our strengths, our productivity. This is supposed to be the crowning honor of every man and every woman. The driving purpose of our lives. This is is supposed to be um, every person's kahamai. Remember kahamai. Your boast, your glory, your joy. Exercising the dominion that has been entrusted to you. Imaging God to creation. Being what you were created to be and doing what you were created to do. You were designed for that to be your driving kahalmai, your driving purpose, the the telos of your life, the end to which your life is aligned and with which everything in you is designed to achieve. The problem is we're continually setting up other kahaumais. We are continually looking to think Other than our designed purpose to give us purpose. We're continually looking to things that were never designed to be our ultimate security to give us security. We are continually looking to things that that were never meant to be our ultimate joy to give us ultimate joy and acceptance and love. Y'all only have one ultimate glory. We can only have one driving kahalmai purpose, glory, joy. And this is the heart of human tragedy, right? That we continually make secondary hopes primary. We continually look to things that that can't bring us into the fullness of life and demand that they do. And we exalt our secondary glories into ultimate glories. This is the very conflict that Paul introduced in Romans 1. Again, I want you to see that these. Ideas are being carefully developed over the course of this life. Take a look at this. This is from Romans 1, verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Who, who are they? Let's see if you were listening earlier. Romans 1, when he says they, who are they? Us. us. You're right, we, right? Paul is setting us up rhetorically so that we feel comfortable with them, 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 them. And then he's like, nah, I was talking about you, right? Okay, so, so claiming to be wise, we became fools. And we exchange the glory of the immortal God. Do you catch that phrase? The glory of God. We exchange the glory, the honor of being the vice-regents of God, created in the image of God in order to carry out uh, the dominion of God in creation through the exercise of love. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we look to the things God created to do for us what only the Creator can do. We continually look to the things in the world to do for us. What can only be done for us by the God who created the world. We look to our politics. We look to our sports. We look to our jobs. We look to our relationships. Continually asking them to make us secure or significant or or loved or rested and joyful And they can never deliver on their promises because they're not God. There is only one driving glory that we are created to pursue. This is idolatry. When we look at what God created to do, that's what only the Creator can do. we, we, We replace the image of God continually with the image of man. I want my glory. I want my kingdom. I want my life. I want things to go the way I want them to go because that's when I feel good. It is that restless need to ungod god God and be unjust to others. This is not an occasional misstep. It is a pervasive problem of the human heart. We crave significance and security and approval and joy in our original purpose of being what we were created to be and doing what we were created to do, but this restless need to have what we lost causes us to continually look to lesser things and call them to be primary. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. We compulsively seek to replace the honor of the image of our Creator for some other honor that reflects the image of what was created. This is, this is worldliness, right? What we've defined as worldliness, this restless need to find our meaning in this world in what is created instead of our, our, our true citizenship, which isn't in this world. And this is why Paul says we continually fall short of the glory of God because we don't carry out the honor of our original creation. We don't exercise our dominion in love for God and in love for others. We believe it, but we fall short of it. We shoot for honor, but we end up with shame. We shoot for security, but we end up exposed and weak. We shoot for significance, but we end up with futility. We yearn for eternity, but we're left with dust. You all know, that's the reality of what we are outside of Christ. But because of the work of Christ, this glory that we lost, this boast that... that has become a a distant, unreachable goal has once again become our joy. This honor that we, we crave but couldn't reach has once again been put within our grasp. How am I? Paul says, we boast in hope of the glory of God. Because we've been justified by faith, because we have peace with God, because we have a standing of grace, we boast, we take joy, we, we, we find our glory in the hope of the glory of God. That we can once again be crowned with the honor that we were created to wear. That we can anchor our joy. That we could find an honor that lifts our head, a security of eternal acceptance and love, a comfort for my troubled and exhausted soul. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. There's so much more to unpack here. But I'm out of time. So much more to unpack. Hmm. Give you a tiny glimpse where we're going to go. This this chapter moves on from here. And what I what I'm going to help you see or hopefully we come to see together is that the glory of God isn't a passive gift that crowns our head, but an active gift that that defines our behavior. That leads us, right? When we talk about the hope of the glory of God, we're not talking about some passive thing we receive. Like the passive righteousness of Christ. That's something we receive. I am, I am, I am covered in the very righteousness of Christ. I don't do anything for that, right? It's mine. It's a gift. When we're talking about the hope of the glory of God, we're not talking about a passive gift. We're talking about an active calling. We're talking about the human job description. We're talking about how you go through your day. Order your, your, it determines how you interact with your loved ones and your co-workers. It determines what you post on social media and what you don't. It determines who you, who you, how you act, where you place your hope, what you take joy in, and what you find sorrow in. It is not something that we simply passively receive. It is something we are to actively exercise. And as we do, we will be changed by it, set free from our lesser hopes and from the prisons of our idolatries into the very glory and freedom of our created purpose. All right, that's where we're going. For today, I'm going to wrap us up in prayer. Let right, me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. Um, <laughs> nobody could have ever dreamed this stuff up. Lord, when we when we come up with our own religions, when we come up with our own paths to enlightenment, they're always about us improving us, us fixing us, us uh, uh, silencing the parts that are bad, and 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 building up the parts that are good. And man, what a crazy message this is! That it has nothing to do with what I offer you, but everything to do with what you have offered me. It has nothing to do with how I fix myself for you, but how you have paid the price to set me free from my need to fix myself. So I can just rest in your love. And, and, and resting in your love, I can be transformed by that love and set free to be what I was created to be. Lord, will you awaken us to the wonder and the joy you? Will you not allow us, Lord, our hearts grow so cold, we can hear this incredible good news, and man, we get more excited about the lotto. And the idea that, oh, I might have a lot of money, as opposed to the fact that I have actually been showered and covered in the eternal, unlimited riches and blessings that come from you. Will you reawaken us to the wonder of this? Will you reawaken us to the joy of this? Will Will you reawaken our souls to the humility that we need to respond to this grace. That we might not just receive it, but we might be transformed by it and set free into it. So we thank you. You paid the price we couldn't pay so we could receive the blessing we couldn't earn. We pray this in the name of our hero, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.